Today, we live in a society far, far wealthier than it was even 50 years ago. And 50 years ago, the world was far, far wealthier than it was just 50 years before that. Ever since the Industrial Revolution started taking off in England in the 1700s, the world has become a richer place decade on decade, almost without fail. We have embraced technologies like steam power, fossil fuels, automation, long-distance communication, bulk shipping, the internet, and everything else that we take for granted today. All of these advancements have meant that we are able to produce more stuff more efficiently and support a larger population of more people who are in turn able to produce more stuff more efficiently. This massive increase in global productive potential has made some people extremely wealthy. We are now in an age where individual men are wealthier than the entire planet was just a few centuries ago. But perhaps more importantly than this, sustained economic growth has meant that living standards have improved for regular people the world over. The economic development of China just over the past 30 years has been responsible for pulling almost 1 billion people out of absolute poverty. So growth is great. Growth normally means more wealth for more people, and this is why politicians push the idea so heavily. But could it all be coming to an end? We have started to all but assume economic growth is a constant over a long enough time frame. Sure, we have ups and downs, but leave it long enough and a 3% growth rate is kind of what we aim for in most developed countries around the world. And the truth is, it might just not be the case anymore. The thing with a growth rate stated in a percentage is that however small that percentage is, it will lead to exponential growth. An economy growing at 3% per year has to double in size every 24 years. And anybody may be able to determine that long term, that is just not sustainable. But let's not get too doom and gloom just yet. Let's really break everything down and look at what may be bringing this party to an end. Growth is often a relatively abstract concept when it comes to economics. And at its core, it's supposed to mean that there are more goods and services floating around an economy, which is ultimately a measure of aggregate supply in an economy. But weirdly enough, we normally measure economic growth using GDP figures. GDP, or gross domestic product, is basically a measure of the sum total of all transactions taking place in an economy, which means, of course, it's a function of demand. Why do economists use GDP to measure growth then? Well, it's easier for starters, it gives you a nice figure to look at and also reacts quickly, and it's much, much easier to measure. It's almost impossible to look at every production line or building site or whatever out there in an economy to actually measure the supply output, and one could reasonably assume that most players out there in a rational economy would not produce something unless they had someone lined up who actually wanted to buy whatever it is that they are producing. Now, this is all a very roundabout way of saying two things. One. Good economists must look at more than GDP figures when assessing the well-being of an economy. And two, genuine long-term economic growth is really dependent on how much we can produce, rather than how much people can buy one year to the next. So with that out of the way, we need to look at what is going on to help us produce more and more stuff. And these are the factors of production. Land, labour, capital, and entrepreneurship. So land is more or less a constant. After the Western world colonised Australia in the 1700s, we more or less maxed out the usable land available to us on the planet, so this one's pretty easy to put aside for now, but it will be really important later on, so make sure to remember this. The next up is labour, which has actually been a pretty big one for two reasons. For starters, 
people are becoming better workers. This is not to say that we are genetically better in any way to our ancestors in medieval times, but rather, the average world citizen today is far better educated than a person was from even a century ago, and this is really, really helpful. Instead of getting out there and toiling the fields by hand, we have learnt to operate and maintain combine harvesters, which means that we can do the work of 100 men with just one. The other reason labour has assisted with sustained economic growth is that there's just more of us these days. More people mean that we can get more work done. This has in recent decades been more or less a positive feedback loop. More people can produce more food and goods and services to support more people. And the next up is entrepreneurship. Now, a lot of economists consider entrepreneurship and labour as one single category, but for the sake of this study, the reason that we have separated them out again is to focus on this increase in worldwide education. People who have studied in fields like engineering or more recently computer science are far more likely to create innovation in these fields. For example, there has been a lot of talk about the productive possibilities of quantum computing, but for anybody to make any kind of progress in this field, they would likely have to be very, very well educated in a vast array of prerequisite subjects, from computer science to quantum mechanics, but in return, we may unlock technology that is as influential on our life as a silicon chip that just came 50 years before it. Now finally, we have capital, and of course, this has been the most influential factor of production over the past 200 years or so. We have gone from a society of basic hand tools to almost fully automated production lines. We have machinery and ships, trains, planes, cars, global communication networks, and everything else in between that works to make us more productive workers. Now you can start to see how all of these factors feed off each other. We wouldn't have been able to develop all of these amazing capital goods without entrepreneurship and innovation, and nobody would be able to use them without a well-educated workforce. But in terms of what has truly been the driving force, it all had to have started back when we utilised machinery instead of animals or our own muscles to power our industry. This is great, and most people would have already had a basic idea that this technical innovation was what was driving us forward. No huge surprises here. But with that kind of goes the assumption that won't we just keep on innovating forever? Will we develop new technologies that will make us even more efficient and make the world even wealthier still? Well, maybe. But just as quickly as there have been forces of our own creation that have propelled us into this modern age of untold wealth, there are forces of our own creation that may very well just keep us here, or potentially even push us back. Most of us think that there was one industrial revolution, and for the most part, that is what the history books will tell us. It started in England in the 1700s and then permeated throughout Europe, and slowly today, the influence of industrialization is still improving the lives of previously agrarian societies. And this is an easy understanding to have, but to the contrary, a lot of economists actually break down human innovation over previous centuries into three distinct revolutions. The first one was the one that we all know and love, that took place from the 1760s to the mid-1800s and involved building textile mills and all of that good stuff all across Europe. The next was around the end of the 1800s and then on to the early 1900s when things like the internal combustion engine, electricity and indoor plumbing became mainstream. This was seen by economists as very distinct from the steam-powered revolution and if anything, it had a lot more of an impact on the level of wealth in the economy than the first revolution did. Things like the internal combustion engine facilitated more efficient transport. Electricity made working throughout the night not only possible, but workable. So things like 
24-hour factories became operational, and indoor plumbing was instrumental in allowing larger city centres to come together without breaking down into cesspools of disease. The third and final industrial revolution was the computer revolution. This was the revolution that allowed humans to outsource some of the thinking they did to machines. And these computers were a lot better at certain types of problems than they were. Things like electronic mail, computer-aided design, heck, even Excel spreadsheets have accommodated a level of wealth and business efficiency that was unthought of a generation ago. But all of that is starting to come to an end. You see, all of these revolutions kind of led to a boom and then a trail into obscurity. Textile mills and masonry factories were huge businesses in the early Industrial Revolution, but not really a major concern to a global economy today. Next up, things like the internal combustion engine has really provided everything it can to us. And sure, we keep on improving and tweaking this technology, but the leap in productive potential between a big V8 and a slightly more efficient Ford four-cylinder is not as big as the difference between a horse and a car. And hence, the economic growth attained from continuing to evolve this technology is just not as great. And finally, the same process is kind of already taking place with computers today. If we go back 50 years, we would see a huge difference in the way business was done because there were basically no companies that had computers outside of things like major engineering firms or whatever. But if we went back 30 years, well, to be honest, everything else would be pretty much the same. Sure, the computers would be older and slower, and they would make that awful noise when they were dialing up to the internet, but by the 1990s, the commercial use of computers had basically delivered 90% of the utility to businesses that it ever would. And even today, most innovation in the computer industry is channeled towards entertainment. Outside of very niche fields like computer-aided design or video editing or animation, businesses only need emails, Excel, basic access to the internet, and perhaps some other types of operation software, which realistically could run just as well on a Pentium laptop from the early 2000s as it could on your new $10,000 gaming PC. The innovation in the modern age to an extent that it genuinely increases our productive potential is more or less over. And while it's impossible to predict what the future looks like, it looks as if computers have given us almost everything they have to give. So we are starting to see diminishing returns on our technical innovation, sure. But that doesn't necessarily mean that growth will stop altogether, it just means it will slow down. But we already kind of knew this. I mean, look for example at countries like Japan and South Korea. As they embrace modern technology, they massively increase their growth rate, but as soon as they were fully up to speed with the modern world, they kind of just slowed down a bit. Nothing new here. But what does potentially put a damper on this is when you combine this technical slowdown with the economic forces that push us in the opposite direction. The first is debt. Particularly in the United States and other developed countries, the level of private and business debt has increased significantly alongside with growth. And while debt in the short term can mean short bursts in economic prosperity, eventually it all has to be paid back with interest, putting a damper on future growth. This is already factored into the regular business cycle that takes place every 10 years or so, but some economists theorize that there is a larger cycle that will take place over a century as debt piles up even through these short-term up and downs. The second major consideration is educational attainment. As we saw earlier, a lot of our prosperity came from becoming smarter and being better innovators or being able to utilize more advanced systems to add more value to a society. But the truth is, most modern countries' educational attainment has plateaued over the past 20 to 25 years. This becomes especially apparent when things like tertiary studies become so unaffordable that people move into less technical professions like trades or basic labor. Sure, with higher populations comes more opportunity to specialize, 
But it is hypothetically possible that the next Elon Musk just says screw it and goes into a more lucrative short-term role, avoiding the kind of education that threatens to put them into a lifelong debt. The second part of education is that people can realistically only learn so much. Even in countries like South Korea, where education is held as a central tenet to one's life, once you have a PhD, you have become a hyper-specialized individual. The level of human knowledge has well exceeded anybody's ability to learn, and even in incredibly narrow fields, we can't necessarily rely on our brains to keep on pushing the bounds of what's possible. The third major force that a lot of economists will point to is a very, very controversial one, but it's the rise in inequality. Throughout the technical revolution, we have seen the classes of people that get rich are people that have embraced modern technology to build companies like Google or Microsoft, Oracle and the like. All of these businesses have contributed untold levels of efficiency to the modern business world, but the wealth is very concentrated. You don't need nearly as many people to run a company like Microsoft as you would a company like Standard Oil, because it simply demands less labour. What this has meant is that a lot of people have been left behind on very stagnant wages, which I'm not going to argue is fair or unfair or even good or bad, but what it does do is limit these people from being able to purchase things beyond bare necessities, which means that there is a decrease in demand for goods that will actually genuinely increase the quality of life for these regular people. For example, things like microwave ovens, dishwashers, vacuum cleaners, washing machines were all very expensive items just a few decades ago, but we released them nonetheless because they would save a lot of time in the household and the average family was earning enough that they could fit this into their budget. But controlling for inflation, something like a microwave in the 1950s would have cost around $12,000 today. But if hypothetically someone invented a fully automated kitchen robot that could cook you basic meals today and market it for that same $12,000, it's unlikely it would ever make it to market. Why? Well, even if I was rich enough to afford $12,000, which an increasing amount of people are not, this buys me a lot of Uber Eats, which you know, like it or not, is something taking advantage of a very poor paid delivery driver, hence inequality stifling this type of innovation. The final major force that most economists agree on is that of environmental issues. Let's face it, we have become pretty wealthy and prosperous sticking it to Mother Earth in recent decades. Factories and cars and planes all spewing greenhouse gases and things like plastics filling up our ocean. It's all bad stuff from a humanitarian perspective, but what's worse is what it means for our economy. Because all of this mess we made, we now really need to work on fixing it which means things like emissions regulations and environmental laws have been put into place around the world, which is great for avoiding the climate apocalypse, but not so great for running a business in the most cost-effective way. A tangible example of this is to think about how we travelled in the 1960s. Airplanes at this time were much more expensive to travel on, they were actually faster than the airplanes of today, because we fly slower today to be more fuel efficient. To further this point, if hypothetically a climate crisis does become a reality, things like rising sea levels and a major uptick in adverse weather patterns are really going to start to beat on our already downtrodden economy. Economic growth is something that is truly important to every global citizen today. You are sitting here listening to the sweet supple sound of my Australian accent today because of economic growth driven by innovation. But it's not something to necessarily take for granted. We are not owed long-term growth. We have to earn it. We have to keep on innovating, keep on becoming more efficient, and also seriously address some major issues that we are going to face in this next century, 
if we want to make sure that we keep on getting richer and richer. What are my thoughts? Well, normally I don't really do this, but personally I am more of an optimist. Sure, we have rinsed all the extra prosperity out of innovations of the past, and yes, there is no doubt that the generations that came before us have left us some unpleasant baggage, but I tend to believe very heavily in the human ability to build a better tomorrow. Chances are, nobody in the 1950s thought these code-breaking machines from the war would mean much right as they were on the precipice of the technical revolution. And maybe the same is true today. Maybe we are in the midst of developing a technology that will give us the next boost of sustained long-term growth, and we just don't even know it yet. Hi guys, thanks for watching. If you did enjoy, please consider liking and subscribing, and or supporting the channel over on Patreon like these lovely people. Otherwise, I will leave a link in the video description to our Discord server, so feel free to jump onto that to participate in our Q&A sessions, and also enjoy the discussion amongst other economics nerds like myself. Thanks guys, bye.